invite you to pray with me as we begin. Our God of grace, as we come to this place from all kinds of different places, different experiences, different belief systems, quite frankly, different phases of life uh, and phases of faith. Some of us are experiencing the consequences of behaviors that we regret. Some of us are in a place very opposite, a place of joy. You've been more real to us than we ever imagined. Some of us are in a more dull place where we used to think we had strong faith and that you were real, but now we wonder if we'll ever get back there. And, um, and is there any hope for even being here today? And from all these different places, you find us to be really similar on one main point, that we find ourselves to be more of a mess than we care to admit to those around us. And your response to our mess and our fragmentation and our brokenness and even our, our all-out rebellion, your response is to move towards us and not disconnect from us, but to move into the pain, into the hurt, into the disconnect so that we may be in a relationship with you and we might know you as being gracious. So show us your grace today as we look into Scripture. And show us that even though we're a mess that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Show us that grace now, we pray in his name. Amen. You know, sometimes just a few words put together, they may not even seem that significant at first, but they take on a life of their own and they grow in significance over time or just because of the developing story within which they find themselves. Think of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. It says something about this Constitution being put in place in pursuit of a more perfect union. A more perfect union. Just simple words thrown together, but kind of profound over time. And uh, over the years, after they get used by different presidents at key times in history, and suddenly Abraham Lincoln is pulling on them years later in his first inaugural address at the, on the eve of the Civil War. It seems inevitable, and he's talking about, he's calling back to those words, a more perfect union. In our own day, you know, time will tell whether history puts it as a big benchmark or anything, but there was a lot of attention to President Obama's speech that he entitled, this entire speech, he gave the title, A More Perfect Union. This happens with phrases and words and sentences that people speak. Uh, even with, with the simple words uttered by Rodney King about 20 years ago. Uh, I picked up this article this, from this morning from the Miami Herald. Herald. Uh, it's a commentary by, um, by Leonard Pitts Jr. He says this, There was always something hapless about Rodney King. He entered into the nation's consciousness and its conscience as a shambling drunk, an unemployed black construction worker who tried to outrun L.A. police rather than be arrested for drunk driving. The result was a police beating surreptitiously captured on video so profoundly vicious that the chief of police himself said it made him sick. In 1992, when a, when a suburban jury conspicuously bleached of black jurors acquitted four white police officers of any crime, the city of Angels went to hell, erupting in one of the worst urban riots in modern American history. Haplessness, thereafter attached to King like a stink as he bounced in and out of the news for domestic violence, drunken run-ins with police, driving into a tree under the influence of PCP. Even the manner of his death Sunday has about it that familiar odor of haplessness. King is believed to have accidentally drowned in his backyard pool. 
If true, isn't that about what you would have expected? Hapless could have been his middle name. But there was a moment, a signature moment, when Rodney Glenn King was not hapless. You remember it, of course. Los Angeles was burning. The death toll was mounting. Property damage uh, is approaching $1 billion. The National Guard is trying to restore peace. The Red Cross is trying to help the stricken. And there comes King, shaken and uncertain, agony on his face and tears in his voice, pleading for peace and asking a question deceptive in its simplicity. Can we all get along? That's right. Can we all get along? I mean, it's almost like a cliché. Right? It's almost like an empty cliche, almost, except not, right, when, when said by that person in the midst of that developing situation and those events in that city at that time. It's very much what's happening with some simple words in our story today in Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. Simple words. God says to Moses as Moses is pleading on the mountain, pleading the case and the cause of the Israelites that are down at the bottom. Um, pleading for God's mercy and forgiveness, basically. And, and God says, I will do the very thing you have asked. Astounding statement from God, if you know the developing story within which it is found. Astounding. We have God working with this group of people that, you know, if God is said, I've heard it said, God is a sticky God, you know, he knows how to, how to make these relationships with uh, wayward people. He knows how to make them work. He sticks around. And if God's that way, this group of people is a very unsticky people. They're, the slogans they would come up with would sound a lot more like this. We want a more perfect division. You know, Can't we all just find a way to part ways? <laughs> that's, the, that's the people of Israel, basically, and how they're showing their, their lack of what you'd call, in this context, lack of covenant skills. Um, in their pre-covenant phase here, before God has sort of sealed the deal, the relationship with a covenant on Mount Sinai, we had them backed up against the Red Sea. And what were they saying? Oh, this is terrible. Take us back to Egypt. Why did we even leave? And then they get it. And then God parts the waters of the Red Sea and they walk through and they get out into the desert and they say, we don't have water. We're thirsty. We wish we were back in Egypt as slaves. And then there's no food. And they're saying, ah, and God makes water come from a rock in the middle of a desert, you know, and they're still complaining and grumbling. But then if you were here last week, you saw finally the ceremony of the covenant, God's law, God's 10 commandments are given to them, but it's part of this beautiful ceremony of them claiming their place in this story. And they say before and after the law is given, they say, we will obey everything that you command everything. They say before and after, we will have no other gods before you. Then Moses uh, is back up on the mountain for a little bit. And, um, and it gets kind of long in the eyes of, of these people down at the bottom. And, and it gets to be about 40 days. They've had the, the covenant. They've had the law given to them as the story goes. Um, and so, you, you know, this is sort of an ancient version of 40 days of purpose, you know, but it doesn't end so well because all of a sudden they decide 40 days is too long. Moses has been gone. Our mediator has gone too long. And they invent sort of an ancient version of Mardi Gras down at the base of the mountain. And in the midst of their revelry and debauchery, what stands right in front of them is this golden calf that they've, they've taken all their gold and they've put it together. And Aaron, Moses' brother, says, let's fashion it into this. And, they, and he says, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt. Oh. 
and they have a party. And so that's the developing story. That's where suddenly God's anger comes in, and God's legitimately angry. After I mean, this is a huge reversion. This is a huge slap in the face. This is a huge turn. This is no thanks to everything so far once again. And God's angry. I know we're not really usually that comfortable with God being angry, and we try to sort that through. Really, because they've just gone through this covenant ceremony, what, what it really is like, and this is very much like the Bible to describe it this way, is that they're like... Um, newlyweds you know they've just said the vows they just said it and they're on their honeymoon and they're on day two of the honeymoon and the husband goes off to the grocery store to pick up a couple things to bring him back to the hotel when he gets there he finds she's invited another man into the bed already on day two and he's mad right i mean that's okay to be mad i think right (laughs) and that you know that so i've made my point that's that's god in this relation, he's angry. He's angry. Um, and so that's why, what do you know? We get to verse 17 that, was, that I started with. How does he get there? He was really mad. How does he get, and you heard how the story started. I'm not even going to go with you. I'm, my presence will not go with you. I'll end up destroying you. He is furious. How does he get to, chapter, how does he get to verse 17? where he relents, where he says, I'll re-enter the covenant. I will go with you. I won't. Basically, what we're saying, what happens between a great sin and restoration with God? Some of you already, maybe you're, that applies somehow with you. But let me even broaden it, because really, this, we're going to answer an even broader question, and that is, how do you expect to ever really experience God? How do you expect in this world to actually experience God? And the answer is simple. You need a mediator. That's what the story tells us. You need a mediator. Or or a priest, you could call him that, because that's the same kind of role that Moses is doing in the story. You need a mediator, and you need a very, very persistent one. That's what Moses is here. And that's actually what every single one of you needs in your life with God. The story shows us two things about that, that this persistent mediator, he's persistent about delivering God's grace, and he's persistent about delivering God's glory into our lives. So let's look at, let's look at it that way. God's grace, God's glory. That's what the mediator brings you. First of all, God's grace. God's grace, what God's grace does in this story, and you see it in verse, um, especially summarized for us nicely in chapter 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Okay, God's grace. But what God's grace does in this story is it melts away his anger. That's how we get to that verse 17 that I started with. Because God's grace interacts with his anger and finds a way, to use a totally different analogy than melting, finds a way to cool it, finds a way to dissipate it or reroute it Uh, anger is something that we all know we all know about anger we know kind of the dynamics of it and anger i think it's important to note the presence of anger denotes value you value something something important is worth getting angry about something matters deeply to you you have an outburst it's more likely to happen an angry outburst 
more likely with someone close to you, a sibling, a parent, a child, a spouse, rather than just that person you've been working with for in a cubicle for about a month now. You know, you're more likely to blow up over here, the people close to you, because it's all about value and things mattering deeply. And we're not usually good at adding grace to anger. Those two, we don't know the chemistry, right, to get those in the sphere together so that out comes something really gracious like it does in this story. We don't, we don't have that. We don't understand that. We're often left with anger simmering and lasting really long and bitterness and wounds and brokenness of relationships resulting. Just an interesting example. There's this documentarian named Andrew Jarecki, and he goes about making this film about... Um, entertainers of children's birthday parties in Manhattan. So it's like, who are the best clowns and magicians in highest demand in New York City? And he's interviewing this one guy, David Friedman, and he's getting to know him and following him around. And at some point, he catches enough, he's got enough intuition emotionally to see that there's something there. And he asks a very piercing question. He says to this clown, this children's entertainer, he says, why are you so angry? And then come, out comes kind of the family story of the Freedmans, and then that ends up actually being the documentary that Jarecki ends up you know, making. And you can go and see that and find out all about the Freedmans. But what I wanted to point out is just the interesting way that that captures a lot of what we do with anger. In a sense, our attempts to try to process anger and deal with it and, and, and do something productive with it is basically like pasting on a clown face. But if asked the right questions, you know, in the right circumstance, out leaks the bitterness. You know, we're Californians, right? We're Northern Californians and we're easygoing. And we say our version of grace is kind of like a quick and easy, hey, no worries, right? And no worries. Nobody's perfect, right? Well, I'm not going to be judgmental about anything here. But what that does, I mean, we think that's grace, but it's actually not. What that actually does is it cuts out both the hard edge of, of anger, legitimate anger, and it cuts out the hard edge of grace. Because in the Bible, God is gracious, but he gets legitimately anger, angry in the story. But his grace can only be substantive and weighty and it can only be felt as truly amazing and big if, he true, if the, the anger and the recognition of, as God puts it at some point in the story, as the sin was great and the anger was legitimate. Only then can the grace be felt as real and deep and life-changing. We don't really know how to do that. So the question is, how does God do it? How does he, how does he manage to do that? and get to the point where he says what he does in verse 17. One little clue to this is um, <clears throat> something that Old Testament scholar Terence uh, Fretheim says about this passage. He says this about God's wrath and God's anger. He says, God, he says, wrath is not a continuous aspect of the nature of God, but a particular response to a historic situation. Let me say that again, that first part. Wrath is not a continuous aspect of the nature of God. Why do I, why do I point that out? I think that's incredibly important in understanding God's grace and God's anger in the story. Because we read in 
Chapter 34, verse 6. I'll say those beautiful words again. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is the continuing aspect of the nature of God. Wrath, temporary, situational. So when those two get together, and Moses knows this, he's this pleading mediator who already knows about the grace of God. And so he keeps coming back to God and he keeps urging and he keeps calling on behalf of the people because he knows when the anger, you know, over time, the anger has to get processed through God's compassion and forgiveness. He knows it has to go through the grace filter. It just has to. That is who God is. And because of the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness, those are, the, that is who God is. And the wrath is temporary Compassion is going to win out. Moses knows this. <clears throat> we don't necessarily know this. Moses does. And you won't find this in any other kind of God, quite frankly, because we kind of invent most of our ideas of God, and most of them sort of come from a sense of our own image. We, we invent a God whose anger just blows up and messes up relationships. That's all we can picture when it comes to anger, because we ourselves don't have this this deep thread of consistent compassion through which our... I mean, can you imagine if you did? Can you imagine the healing and the relationships you'd still have in your life if you had this ability to process everything through this compassion and this forgiveness? Instead, we look at God and we kind of say, God, he's angry. Uh, he's going to blow, he's going to blow, he's going to blow. If he's angry, I'm worried. And that's kind of our... One of our actual... The, the default drives of our sense of God that we keep coming back to. We just can't get away from that, it seems like. But God reveals himself differently, and you need this revelation. Because in verse 6, you're seeing God's anger almost never wins the day because he's got this elaborate, well-developed fuse extension system. I made that up. Fuse, you know, the idea is his, he's not short-fused. He's got this long fuse, and he's just got a, a system in place. It's his character. He is compassion. He is forgiveness. And so, then you've got to stop and think. Yeah, I mean, we've got to make the bridge at some point to Jesus. Consider for a second, understanding Jesus himself, his whole identity. Who is Jesus? What does he mean to our world? Who is this guy that so many churches talk about? Try to understand him in, through this exact lens, that he is the one, and in him there is the place where anger and compassion, God's legitimate anger and his deep character of compassion mingle in the same place. And they come out in such a way that compassion wins. That's the cross of Jesus. Where actually God's final solution, God's final endpoint on dealing with the temporary anger, the less permanent anger and wrath, the final point for that is to aim it and to turn it inward on himself. So that it would never, there would never be a worry in your life if you know this mediator that it's aimed at you. That would never even cross your mind once this has happened. So we have a new mediator of grace in Jesus. Just quickly, you also need a mediator who's persistent to deliver God's glory. Glory is this, this center point of this text. Uh, I could, could have preached the whole sermon on it. This could have been five sermons, really, with all the stuff in there. Very, very disciplined week for me to try to get this down to under 60 minutes. Just kidding. Under, um, under 30 minutes. 
Um, but so, so Moses is this mediator, right? And he's in this, through the story, he keeps pleading, he keeps doing this mediation kind of role. In chapter 32, at one point, he says something very insightful, very much pointing to Jesus. And he says, if you can't forgive their great sin, then take me, blot my name out. Oh, what a foreshadowing. God doesn't take him up on it. And then he starts pleading for God's presence. Okay, you're not coming with us? No, come with us. You need to come with us. And here's why. And finally, God says, okay, in verse 17. And then still, in chapter 33, verse 18, the very next thing really astonishes us. The next, the third thing Moses pleads for, he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. He, for some reason, he knows, he thinks he needs more of God's glory. Do you have a sense of that? Do you, do you have a sense that that applies to you? I wonder how much we actually think that way, how much we actually feel that. He knows it. And he probably, you know, he has a different sense of glory perhaps than what we have because glory in the Bible means weight, heaviness. Think about in your life. Is there substance? Is there weightiness? You wake up in the morning and you say, there's, there's substance to this life. There's substance to the direction of my life. There's value. And then you start to say, well, yeah, I guess I could use a little glory. <laughs> I guess. I guess, you, you know, maybe I'm with Moses on this one, right? But we don't necessarily go to God asking for this very often. But there's really a glory gap in the center of all of our lives. And I think that it's, it, it is the source of much, if not even most, of our searching and seeking emotionally, psychologically. It's at the center of our stories, this glory gap. It's the reason why we hurt. It's the reason why we can't seem to rest and we just keep going and going and going. It's the reason why we can't seem to get a handle on the money and get it into where I'm maybe saving and maybe giving a little bit away and just can't turn that corner. And it's the reasons why we might be terrible at relationships one after another. There's the wreckage, and it's the reason that we go through this world often very scared, and maybe we even hide behind a, a sort of clown face of kindness, and it's the reason why we react the way we do in all different situations, the glory gap. And Moses, he mediates this glory. He goes up to the mountain. God shows him a part of himself. He shows him some. He doesn't give all that Moses asks, but he shows him some. And then Moses goes down the mountain, and what we read about is that Moses is so full of this light and this brightness that his face is shining and he has to wear a veil. The people want him to wear a veil because the glory is too much. But nonetheless, he's, he's coming down from the mountain, and God's glory is coming to the people, and they see that substance and that value through the mediator. Well, we need that. And we find it in Jesus. There's actually the story of the transfiguration where Jesus finds himself on a mountain. And Elijah, the ancient prophet, is there, but also going further back, Moses is there on the mountain, and they're all just bright as can be. And it says about Jesus <clears throat> um, that his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And the way Luke says it in Luke chapter 9, he says that when the when Peter and his companions woke up, they happened to be asleep at the time, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. That's what Jesus actually does in our life. That's what Jesus' role is to bring you glory. Just imagine if your life can have substance. If you can wake up every day and say there's, there's weight, there's glory, there's value, there's substance. Through Jesus, God is... Not saying, climb the mountain 
and you might be able to get to me. You might have some confidence or some assurance or some glory. He says, no, I send my glory down and I bring it into your world. Just a little confidence booster before I close in prayer. Uh, If you're at all seeking that, if you're at all seeking the substance your life might have through Jesus being at the center of your life, this is what um, is said in really the first commentary, the first reflection in the New Testament of this ancient uh, Exodus 34 glory episode. There's a, in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, there's a whole reflection on the mountain and the glory. And this simple, this is how it's, how it's closed, the simple phrase or the simple sentence. And we all with, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Let us pray. God of grace, our lives so often feel utterly devoid of glory and weight and substance. And um, these words, maybe they are helpful or maybe they spoke deep to us. Um, Or maybe they just feel like words. And the truth is we need you to help us even to see your glory and even to see and be convinced and assured it applies to us. So would you help us meet us wherever we are as we hear these words today and convince us that you do come down. You do love us so much. And you are a sticky God who puts himself back into relationship with us over and over again especially through Jesus. Assure us of this, we pray. Amen.